I want to invite you to turn with me to Zechariah 14. We come this morning to the conclusion of our time in Zechariah, and we'll see that in the conclusion of this prophetic book, the Lord has for us a prophecy of the end times. But for what purpose? Oftentimes we're tempted to read these these end times prophecies, whether they be in Zechariah or in Daniel or in Revelation, and, and we try and use them to unlock the mystery of the day of Jesus' return. As if it's a riddle to be solved. But nowhere in Scripture does the Lord indicate that that is the purpose for these end times prophecies. It's not a riddle to be solved so that we would know the date of Jesus' return. If that were it, to what purpose are we solving that riddle? Many live their lives trying to stockpile goods out of fear of that day. But the Lord is using this prophecy to speak to His people in the midst of their current setting to give them hope. So with that, purpose and mind, we turn to Zechariah 14. I'm going to pray, asking the Lord's blessing on the reading and preaching of this passage. Would you bow with me? Father, as we come to this text, we humbly ask that you would give us understanding that you would, through that understanding, bring the conviction and comfort of the gospel that we might see Jesus and know our place in Him. Do this, we pray, in the name of Christ. Amen. Friends, this is a long text, but I ask you to follow along with me as I read. I will read the entire chapter of Zechariah 14. This is the inerrant and infallible Word of God. Behold, the day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when He fights on a day of battle. On that day, His feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley So the one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward, and you shall flee to the valley of my mountains. For the valley of the mountains shall reach to us all. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and the holy ones with Him. On that day there shall be no light, cold or frost, and there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord neither by neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in the summer as in winter. 
the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and His name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft. On its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hanel to the king's wine presses. And it shall be inhabited. For there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And on that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them so that each will seize the hand of another and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, and the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. And on that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts, on that day. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. What do you long for? As you anticipate the future, as you contemplate the present, what do you long for? What is the deep desire of your heart? Is it for more prosperity? Is it for freedom from the darkness of depression? Do you long for some relationship to be reconciled? Do you long for freedom in that sin struggle that continues to hold you captive? At our core, our longings, these longings, are fundamentally a longing for the wrong to be made right. Within our hearts and within the society, 
at large, we see this desire everywhere around us. Regardless of what you think of the the social unrest and the protests that have been going on in our nations, in those protests there is a desire for the wrong to be made right. The image of God within all of us longs for this because it has been this desire has been placed in us by the God who has created us. This desire of our hearts for the wrong to be made right is ultimately a longing for peace. And this longing for peace lies at the heart of this passage. It is a longing for the peace of God for shalom. Now, shalom, peace, is so much more than the absence of conflict. It is the presence of blessing. It is the end of strife and danger and the coming of true security. The people of Jerusalem who would have received this first reading of this prophecy from Zechariah, they lived in Jerusalem, a city whose name meant the city of peace. And as the Lord had brought them back to Jerusalem from exile, they had seen His work. They had seen the rebuilding of the temple. Structures were were coming back. There were signs of prosperity, though there was still struggle. But yet they still had this longing. The longing remained because the structures did not bring peace. Peace was not their experience, nor is it ours. And so into that setting and into this setting, the Lord gives us this passage. In the beginning of the passage, in the opening verses, verses 1 and 2, the Lord is drawing out this longing for peace. This deep desire of our heart as He exposes the wickedness of sin. Look, as we go through this passage, I'm going to focus more on on the big picture than many of the individual details, but what I will tell you from this passage and from other end times prophecies that we will see in Revelation is that regardless of the details, there is a run-up of of sin and wickedness at the end times. A run-up of violence that we see in this passage in the first couple of verses that is horrific to read about. There is a mobilization of evil. There is gathering to do battle against the city of God or maybe more importantly and appropriately, the people of God. But in these first couple of verses, we see something that for some of us gives pause. The Lord is the one gathering them. God is sovereign even over this run-up of of wickedness. And so we ask ourselves, why would He do that? How could He do that? And He does not answer that question. So it's important for us to understand 
His sovereignty over this wickedness in terms of the movement He's making and the end to which it is headed. He gathers evil for this battle ultimately that that evil will be defeated and judged. We read this and it fuels our longing. But there's hope even in that fueling because the first verse opens, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. This opening verse is a promise. A promise that the Lord will make all things right. But in that promise, we must also understand that that future is not yet here. It's not yet here, but the outcome is not in doubt. The Lord is exposing our longing for peace. But that longing for peace is a longing that we'll see fulfillment. What begins in this chapter with the winds of war will end with peace. But though the winds of war are crystal clear for us in these opening verses, the the ultimate fulfillment of our longing is a bit more confusing when we read it in the passage. Verses 20 and 21 present this picture of the fulfillment. The bells of the horses. What's going on there? Why is the passage bringing us to some mention of the bells on the horses? They were common implements on a common domestic animal. These bells are of no particular importance, but that is particular precisely the reason they are important in this passage. The common, everyday bell in that day, in the day of the Lord, will be inscribed with the words, Holy to the Lord. Now let's unpack that just a little bit more. Because you see, in Zechariah's day, those words, Holy to the Lord, were words that were inscribed on the high priest's turban. The high priest was the one who would go into the Holy of Holies to intercede on behalf of the people. To go into the presence of God and offer sacrifice. And as he would do so, the holy man wearing his holy appointed garments would be inscribed with these words, holy to the Lord. But on that day, it will not merely be the high priest going into the holy of holies that will be holy to the Lord. It will be all things. All people, even the bells on the horses and the pots in all of the homes. And that is important because if those common implements are holy to the Lord, so will be the people of God. The fulfillment of our longing that this passage is pointing to is holiness. 
The whole thrust of the passage is moving us in that direction. So I ask you, when you hear the word holy, when you hear this call to holiness, what goes through your mind? What's the image in your mind? For many of us, when we hear holy or holiness, we think holier than thou. Because for many of us, the concept of holiness has been tainted by self-righteous religious people who are either prudish or hypocritical or both. There are others of us who have sought holiness, but we've sought it on our own terms, thinking that we could accomplish holiness, that we could find holiness on our own terms, and in so doing, we have become self-righteous. Might that be you? I ask the question because I wrestle with it myself. And so let me offer to you a personal assessment test that I've gone through myself this week. Do you struggle with frustration? What might be behind that frustration? We've talked about this movement from the wrong to the right, the wrong being made right, but when you experience the wrong, do you respond with frustration? And when you do, what lies behind that frustration? Could it be that whatever wrong you are encountering is not meeting your own personal standards? And could the frustration that is born out of that be an outworking of your standards not being met? Could the frustration that you struggle with be the point of your personal self-righteousness? I don't ask you to go anywhere that I'm not going myself. But I invite you to consider, or maybe reconsider, the holiness that our God is calling us to. Because on that day, the day of the Lord, the sin that divides us relationally will be wiped away. Not merely the guilt that we have because of our sin, but the very desire for it. So on that day, holiness will be complete. That will be the day of holiness. That will be the day of peace, when our longing, the deep longing of our heart for the wrong to be made right will ultimately be manifested in a longing and an experience of holiness. Even if we don't have the language to express it, our longing, the deep desire of our heart placed in our hearts by God, is a longing for this holiness. For a return for us and for all of creation to the paradise of Eden. That's where the passage starts. It's where the passage concludes. The exposure of our longing and the fulfillment of our longing. But the rest of it is the in-between. 
and in between, on a cosmic scale and within our own hearts, there is a battle. A battle that is being waged that will come to a final conclusion on the last day. This passage exposes a deep divide. It begins with wickedness and ends with the holiness of God. But what do we do with that deep divide? For us, that deep divide is either a longing for a destination or a chasm of despair. Now, the, the longing... The longing recognizes the distance that must be traveled, but that longing is one of hope. It's a desire for a destination, but there is hope in it because we know that there is one who will take us there. Alternatively, when we have lost sight of that hope, the longing that will bridge the great divide turns into a chasm of despair because we know that that destination, that distant shore is unreachable by us. And the very mention of it brings about the darkness of depression. And so which is it for you? Is this divide exposing a chasm of despair or a hopeful longing? (laughs) that captures the battle. Are we trying to bridge it on our own? Or are we trusting in another? And with that, verse 3 tells us, points us to our hope. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when He fights on a day of battle. Our hope is found in the fact that we do not fight this battle on our own. Again, I will not work through every detail of this battle, but I would like to summarize it by pointing to three aspects of the battle. The first aspect of this battle is that in it, wickedness is conquered. Look, the battle, (laughs) this battle is over before it ever starts. We love superhero movies. There are whole series that have been made out of them, but there is no superhero that exists in real life or on the movie screen that compares to the Lord Jesus who is strong and mighty in battle. I take much of this figuratively, but as I take it figuratively, I very much affirm the power of the Lord Jesus Christ to literally do just what He has described here. But see what happens when the Lord Jesus shows up for this battle. He plants His feet on the Mount of Olives. A mountain just east of Jerusalem. And with the push of His feet, the mountain is separated northward and southward, creating a deep and wide valley. Earlier this summer, our family was in Colorado. And we were driving just west of Denver, approaching the the front range of of the Rocky Mountains and And as I-70 goes west out of Denver, you see as it passes through this gap in the mountains. It's as if 
the mountains have been separated so that a two a divided highway can can cross through them. It's a picture of what we see in verse five. The mountain is separated by Jesus for a purpose. So that the Lord Jesus might provide an escape for His people going one direction, and the Lord Jesus and His angelic army coming into the battle themselves. Jesus does not run from. Jesus runs to through the valley that He Himself has provided so that He can come and conquer. And the outcome of that battle was never in doubt. Verse 9 tells us, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and His name one. He will reign, having conquered wickedness. And His name will be one. Meaning there will be no challenges to His name. The idols of within our own heart and within the world around us will be defeated forever. Wickedness will be conquered. It's the first aspect we need to see in this battle, but the second is this wickedness will also be judged. You see this judgment in verses 12 through 15. Again, I take this picture somewhat figuratively, but do not be lulled to sleep by that. The picture that we have of this judgment is horrific. Is a picture of gruesome torment as the enemies of God are judged. See, see the picture. On one hand, uh, the restraint that the Lord has, has had over this evil will be lifted as, as they are cast out by themselves. The restraint will be lifted and the forces of evil will even turn their battle against themselves. It's a picture. It's a picture of the emptiness of hell away from the presence of God when evil is left unrestrained. And there, as the forces of evil turn the very battle against themselves, there's a picture of them while standing, rotting in place. It's gruesome. It's a gruesome picture of the judgment that will come upon the enemies of God. When Jesus, in the Gospel accounts, would speak of this day of judgment, He would speak of those who were cast into the outer darkness, and He describes it as a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Gnashing of teeth. Imagine the torment, the emptiness of knowing that the door has been shut. The door has been shut and you are cast out to experience for all eternity the judgment due your sin. In Revelation, this judgment then is described as the Lord Jesus casting out His enemies into a lake of fire. Take your pick. But these pictures of the judgment of God are meant to strike terror in the hearts of His enemies. 
It is meant to strike terror in the hearts of those who will experience the judgment apart from a saving relationship with Jesus. Friends, I urge you this day, hear and heed the call to turn to Christ. Do not face the judgment of God on your own merits. Because Zechariah gives us a terrible picture of that outcome. Wickedness will be conquered. Wickedness will be judged. But that is not the last word in this passage. Because you see, in this battle, peace will be established. The day of judgment, the day when the judgment is meted out, will also be for God's chosen the day of peace. And for those who are judged, and for those who will experience the peace, the shalom of God, do not miss the duration of this day. Verse 7 speaks of it as a unique day. A day which is known to the Lord. Neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. It's pointing to the fact that this day will not end. When the Lord ushers in His peace, it will be an eternal peace. Revelation captures this by telling us in chapter 21, verse 23, that the Lord our God will be in our midst and He will be our light. There will be no need for sun nor moon because the Lord will be our light. Friends, we all from time to time have good days. But even your best day ends. <laughs> your best day pales in comparison to that day. But this day is a day of peace that is eternal and will be marked by an ever-flowing fountain of living water flowing out from the throne of God providing sustenance <laughs> for all from sea to sea. And in this peace, this eternal shalom, our worship will be, will be perfected. Look, I, I, I've studied it. I, I don't understand all that is going on in verses 16 through 19. But what I do believe I understand is it points to the worship that will exist and persist in glory. A worship that will be that will consist of those from every nation, tribe, and tongue coming and gathering around the throne, singing praises to our God. In this peace, it will be eternal, it will be joyful, it will be prosperous, and we will worship. That's the picture that we have in this text. The vision that the Lord has given to close this book of prophecy. And so what do we do with it this morning? Well, we receive it. We receive it. And as we receive it, we allow it to shape our lives now. 
the vision of Christ Church is this, that we are and aspire to be the people who are embracing our need of Jesus and delighting in Him. It's, it's coming to recognize that our holiness falls short, but our Savior has come to redeem us and to, prov- and to make us holy to turn our focus on the One who is worthy of our delight. And when we do that, when we embrace our need and delight in Him, then, then we join in His work of redemption so that all things begin to reflect the goodness, truth, and beauty of our triune God. What do we do with this? We join in His work of redemption because the Lord our God is making all things new within our hearts and within creation. So on one hand, to join in His work of redemption means to seek justice, to to right the wrongs. The wrongs that exist in our relationships and within our own families. So have honest, thoughtful conversations within your family. Don't talk to people. Talk with them. Have honest, thoughtful conversations bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to bear within your family. Do so in your workplace. Your work is a gift given to you by God by which He has equipped you to bring Him to bear in the place of that gifting. And therefore, there is deep meaning in work. Join in His work in your work. See your place in this community, whether it be in the ball field or the civic realm, is a place where you join in His work of righting the wrongs. Friends, we live with this longing for the wrong to be made right. Longing ultimately for holiness, because we know in our hearts that this world is not as it should be. The world has been affected by the fall. We have been affected by the fall. So join in the Lord's work of redemption. But this text helps us to remember two things as we go about joining His work. And the first is this. Remember God's time frame. We work for Redemption. We join in His work of redemption, but we are not yet in glory. The Lord is the one who will accomplish it. And when we understand that, we understand that we live in the now, not in the not yet. That there is a movement, but it will not be complete until glory. That protects us from despair. It protects us from frustration. Because we're joining Him in a work that ultimately He will be the one to accomplish. We won't see it in this day, but we will on that day. The second reminder that this text gives us as we join in the Lord's work of redemption is this. That our longing for peace is a longing for the establishment of holiness. And that's where Zechariah 14 points us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In His second coming, that this chapter is all about, Jesus will return as a warrior king. And as He returns as a warrior king, He will come to conquer His enemies. 
but He will also come to receive His beautiful bride. And that's where those closing verses of Zechariah 14 allude to speaking of the holiness that will exist. It alludes to His beautified holy bride. And there, in His second coming, we see the purpose of His first. You see, Jesus is all-powerful. And He could have established His eternal throne without the cross. But without the cross, there would be no bride. All would receive the judgment due God's enemies because none are holy. None are righteous. No, not one. It took His first coming to secure the bride. Because then, and His first coming, He came not as the conquering warrior, but as the sacrificial lamb. And on the cross, He bridged the great chasm, turning our despair into hope. Jesus the warrior and Jesus the Lamb are one. And Jesus is the one who fulfills our longings by righting all wrongs. Towards the end of the return of the King, the third installment in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings trilogy, there is a, is a moment when the evil ring has been destroyed. And those who have given so sacrificially to participate, to join this work of redemption, uh, Sam and Frodo are there. And, and Sam wakes up from a sleep to see uh, Gandalf. And as he does, he, he looks up at Gandalf and he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? It's a beautiful way of acknowledging what you and I know to be true, or at least our deepest longings know to be true. This world is not right. It is sad, but there is hope that the sad, the wrong will be made untrue on the day when God redeems all of creation. The world is not as it should be, but on the final day when King Jesus returns, the wrong will be made right, the sad will be made untrue, the curse will be rolled back, and peace will reign on earth. Friends, in Christ and in Christ alone, we can live now in light of that hope. Let us do so for His glory, for His praise, and for His honor. Father, we praise You for the vividness of this picture, for the hope that it brings. And I ask that for all who hear this Word, You would apply it to me, to, to all who listen, that we would, we would know Jesus, that Jesus is one, that Jesus is the one, 
who is making all things new. Do this, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen.